It's great to see all of you. First of all, I'm not David Sills. He's here, by the way. Um, my name is Brian Vickers, and it's my privilege today to introduce David to you. Uh, you can read David's bio in the booklet, and I have it here before me. David is uh, president and founder of Reaching and Teaching International Ministries, and he's also a uh, professor of Christian missions and cultural anthropology at Southern Seminary, where I have the privilege of working alongside him. And he's also the director of global strategic initiatives at Southern Seminary. And there's a whole host of things I could list and say about David. Um, I said, I asked him if there's anything particular that he wanted me to mention. He said, yeah, just tell them this. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And that's, that's how he views himself. Um, David has been used by God in a particular way in my life. Just to share with you really quick, this will give you some kind of insight. Um, Several years ago, when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do when I grow up, um, we sat down to lunch, and I was really struggling with my own place and my own sense of calling in, in regard to missions. And uh, I don't even know if you'll remember this. We sat down at lunch, and I was just you know, I was talking about all the things I was getting to do and travel and teach and speak at things like this and be at the GMHC and other conferences. And I was like, I, you know, I just really want to be in, in missions. And David said, it sounds like you are. And then we started, you know, sort of talking about contentment and rest. And, and God used that moment in time for me to learn to start appreciating what he was actually doing in my life instead of just thinking about what might happen down the road. David is well known at Southern, not just for being a scholar of missions and, and a great and awesome teacher of missions, but also somebody who practices missions. He, he is constantly away. He's the only person I know who spends weekends in Ecuador teaching. And I'm not even making that up. Uh, he was, and he's, he gives his whole life and all of his time to teaching. And, and he's, a, uh, he's a devoted father and a devoted mother. Uh, mother. He's a, <laughs> whoops. He's a devoted father. This is what I need to sit down. He's a devoted father, a devoted husband and grandfather. And it's my privilege to, uh, to introduce you uh, to him today. David, please come. Thank you, brother. You know, the Lord is pleased when we are involved in missions. It's his mission. It's his task. He's given it to us. He lets us participate in his mission. And he loves it when he sees people getting out of their comfort zone and serving him. I believe that God has made us to be not just recipients of all the blessings that he gives us, whether that's biblical teaching or whether it's spiritual insight or whether it's finances, whether it's medical skills. We're not just to receive that for ourselves, but rather we're to be a channel of that blessing. And the metaphor that comes to my mind is a, a big recipient, like a, a, a 55 gallon drum, something like that. that's filled with water. There's no way for the water to get out and there's no way for more water to get into it. What happens after it just sits there for a little while, it begins to get stagnant, what my kids used to call yuck. It's not good for anything. And that's how a lot of us are. We've received so many blessings. We're able to come to conferences like this. You sit under godly pastors that teach you. You're, you're able to read wonderful books and listen to radio preachers. And you just get filled and filled. And every day you go to the Lord in your quiet time and say, Lord, fill me. And he says, I can't. You're already full. And when I was pastoring, there would be people who would come to me and they would say, brother, I just feel kind 
kind of cold spiritually, like my prayers aren't even getting out of the room. And I said, well, tell me, who are you pouring into? Who are you giving your life to? And I said, well, nobody, because I feel so cold right now. I said, well, I think that may be the problem. That when we receive and then we give out. Let, let me tell you what, the, what I heard in my pastor's sermon this morning. Or let me tell you what the Lord showed me in my quiet time. And we begin to disciple other people or teach other people the Lord. He may take from our open hands, but he gives us more instead of living life like this. So many people have this perspective of I want to get all I can, can all I get and sit on the can. That's how we live the rest of our life. And we wonder why we're not receiving more and more blessing. The Lord loves it when his people get involved in missions. I want to I want to give you a couple of numbers and some some of you may tune me out. But a lot of us think in terms of of um, of numbers. And this is just what I call missionary math. And nobody needs a calculator just to lay out some statistics very quickly. And then we'll get into the message. But I want you to know that this morning, while we're here in this beautiful place, meeting people from all over the world, making new friends, learning new insights, a third of the world's population has never heard the gospel. That's over two billion people with a B, many of whom have never even heard Jesus' name. And they come from over half of the world's people groups that are cut off from the gospel with no access to a missionary, to a Bible, to a radio broadcast, to any understanding of the gospel. Now, here in the U.S., we have a trained Christian worker for every 235 people. But once you leave the U.S., we have a trained Christian worker for every 450,000 people. There is a dearth of opportunity to learn and to understand the gospel and all that it means to us. Of the pastors around the world, on average, 85% of them not only have no theological training and no pastoral preparation, they have no access to it whatsoever. You know, our seminaries, and, and Dr. Vickers has mentioned that I'm a seminary professor, and he is too, and we receive a lot of young people to train for missions even, but you know, 95% of all the seminary grads stay in the United States and only 5% go to the world. And 95% of the world's people live outside the U.S. Only 5% of the world's people live inside. We have it exactly backwards. And, and I don't try to play the role of the Holy Spirit and say who can serve where. But you've got to wonder when about 80% of pastors serve within 200 miles of their wife's mama, who's calling whom? You know, when you, when you begin to look at that. Are we really thinking about answering the call that God is giving? I, I've got to believe that he is giving a call to many people, perhaps even this morning. And one of our heroes, J. Hudson Taylor, uh, started China Inland Mission, said the Great Commission is not an option for us to consider. It is a commandment to obey. And if we are believers, we will genuinely consider what God has to say to us. And we think about the needs around the world. Some of you say, well, brother, send them the Bible. Get them a Bible. Of the 6,913 languages in the world, we only have 422 Bibles. About 1,200 adequate New Testaments. But thousands of languages don't have a single word of the scriptures in their language. In 2015, 
Another missions hero, Amy Carmichael, said the work of all the missionaries around the world. And you've heard about a lot of the different agencies that are at work around the world. And there's many more besides us that are here right now. But all the work of the missionaries and mission agencies in the world, she said, is like a grain of sand. And the need is like a pyramid. There is so much that needs to be done still. I'm reminded of a time in Israel's history when Joshua was to take the children of Israel across the Jordan River at flood stage, go into the promised land and conquer the land. He had the people of God, the promises of God, the presence of God running out of peas. But he had all of that with him. And yet that wasn't a big country. I mean, it wasn't any bigger then than it is now at that time. I mean, you, you could go from the top to the bottom in a car in about three hours. Some of you could do that more quickly, I suspect. But from one side to the other in about an hour and a half wasn't a huge country. And yet with all of that provision from God, in Joshua 13, verse 1, the Lord comes to Joshua. And he says, you are old and advanced in years. And very much of the land remains to be possessed. You know, I used to think about that when I was a new believer. I came to know the Lord in my mid-20s, so I was studying the Bible afresh. Although I'd grown up in church, I was now reading the Bible and understanding what I was reading. And I came to those places and I thought, come on, Joshua, if you had just done what the Lord said do, look at all the problems that Israel would have avoided. And then it was, it was like I felt a finger on my chest when, when I came to the understanding that after 2,000 years... We still haven't done what the Lord gave to us to do. A third of the people on this planet have not heard the gospel yet. Somebody might say, but now, brother, okay, but we're giving it the old college try. It's a big world. There are some gospel, gospel, hostile places out there. They don't want us to come. We're doing what we can. In 1896, in the city of Atlanta, there was a guy working in his lab and he was mixing together water and color, sugar, flavoring, different stuff like that. And he came up with the stuff you're supposed to drink. He called it Coca-Cola. But he didn't do so well that year. The first year it cost him $70 to make that stuff. And he only sold $50 worth. And a $20 loss in 1896 was a pretty good hit. But he stayed with it. He began to do a little bit better. And we'll cut to the chase. Here we are 119 years later. From zero to now, 119 years, and the Coca-Cola logo and the product itself is recognized by over 95% of the people on this planet. I've been to countries where the gospel is not, in parts of countries where the gospel is not. There is no church, there's no missionary, there's no Bible in that language, there's no Jesus film, there's no radio broadcast. They have no access to the gospel, and hanging outside a little store will be a Coca-Cola sign. Once out in Ecuador, we drove as far as you could go out to a place called Coca at that time. We left our cars. We got in dugout canoes. We went three days out all the way as far as you could go in Ecuador to where we actually crossed into Peru, going out into the Oriente in Ecuador. We got out and we were in this indigenous community and they said, listen, we have a laguna that belongs to our community. If you guys want to fish in it, there's piranha and all kinds of stuff. We thought, cool, let's go. So we, we followed with them. We go another six hours out into the jungle. The canopy was so thick that the sunlight didn't even come down to the trail. It was like twilight down there. 
And as we got all the way out there, monkeys running across the canopy over us and everything, and we finally got to another set of dugout canoes to cross over the lake. And as we're getting in that little canoe, I looked, and under a bush right there was a Coke can. How does that happen? But it does. It's everywhere. And so in 119 years, we can do it for profit. But in 2,000 years, we have not done it for the glory of God and in obedience to Christ's command. Untold millions this morning are still untold. They must hear the gospel message. Carl F.H. Henry said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And there are many people who will leave this world today. On average, about 50,000 people leave this world every day and go into a Christless eternity just from unreached people groups around the world. Now, I don't want to stress reaching unreached people groups as if that's what missions is all about. In fact, I think one of the big errors of our age is that we have bought the lie or the erroneous notion, if you don't want to take it so strongly, we have bought this erroneous idea that missions equals reaching the unreached. That is only half of the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, of all the people groups, of all the ethnicities, pantata ethne. We are to do that. But then he said, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That is, they must be discipled to know how to apply this to their own lives and to know how to teach the person who comes behind them. It's not enough just to come in. Each section here is a different unreached people group. So I come and I preach the gospel a few times until some people raise their hands. And then I go do it to this one. And then I go do it to this one. And I go to do it to this one. And then I send the letter back to my mission agency saying all these people groups are reached. No, not if they don't understand what the gospel actually teaches and how to apply it to their lives. The great tragedy of the world is not that it is unreached. The great tragedy in the world today is that it is undiscipled. They don't know the pure gospel. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know how to apply these things to their own lives. Some people, when they get this mindset that missions equals reaching the unreached, and that's all it is, they preach a series of sermons in each place. Let me ask you, how many times did you hear the gospel before you heard the gospel? Many times we come in and we teach and we think missions is reaching the unreached. So I want to come and I want to preach and get the gospel out and then move on because I'm a missionary and missions is reaching the unreached. And what happens for maybe with my students, maybe with missions colleagues, I know they'll go into an area and they get some people who come to know the Lord. They begin to establish a little church, starting out with a Bible study, and they're beginning to disciple these new believers and beginning to teach them. And then they sense a little bit of restlessness and they're talking to their significant other and they say, I, you know, I just feel a little frustrated and I don't know why. And then one day it dawns on them. I know I'm frustrated. I'm not in missions anymore. I'm a missionary and these people are already reached now. And they leave too quickly to go find another group without someone coming in behind them to do the training. Now, as Brian mentioned, we have this ministry reaching and teaching. And that's what we do is we go around and we teach pastors and leaders to truly understand the gospel so that they can teach others. We train trainers. That's primarily what we do. And I see everywhere I go that that is a common thread and a common need because people in the past left too quickly. 
There's a, in the perspectives reader, some of you are familiar with, there is a graphic that talks about the four P's. That when a missionary first comes in, he should strive to be that pioneer, pith, helmet, machete, the whole thing. Even if yours is a concrete jungle, you should go in as that pioneer, bringing the gospel. But then, as people begin to know the Lord and they're studying the Bible to figure out what this means to their lives, your role changes a little bit and you should become a parent. And a parent is the one who nurtures those young believers. As was mentioned, I just might mention again, I have two new grandchildren uh, to add to the others that we had. But these two brand new granddaughters that we have. What if my daughter and my son-in-law, when they had this most recent one, and they left the hospital, they just left that baby on the sidewalk and went on home to make more babies. Well, they would probably be on CNN or something like that. You can't do that, right? You have, you have to take care of the children you bring into this world. And that should apply spiritually, biblically as well to our ministry. Those that we are seeing come to know the Lord, we need to train them up and to teach them. That's the role of a parent. But, you know, if you're really doing your missions work well, one day that parent role will shift and you will be more of a partner in ministry with them. You don't want to be the one who's in charge forever and ever. That's why we see our role as training trainers. We don't think that people from Louisville, Kentucky need to be the trainers till Jesus comes back. We are training up people who can train up other people. And that's what missionaries do, is you're training up someone to take over this ministry, to take over this church, because one day there's another peak coming. You won't just be a partner with him. You may go to another part of the country and leave the work with him. And then you may be a participant in his ministry. You were first the pioneer, and then you were a parent, and then you were a partner. But now you come back from time to time and participate in what he is doing. If you can think about overlapping triangles, that one triangle is this way and one is this way, and they kind of overlap a little bit. In the very beginning, it's like a parent with a brand new child. The person over here has complete authority. But as that child matures and grows... That authority and responsibility in the life of that little child should wane until eventually the child goes to college and is not calling mom every day to see what to wear to school because you have reduced your input into their daily life when at the same time theirs is growing. When they're a few years old, you might ask, do you want to wear the red shirt or the blue shirt today? Would you like to have yogurt or a sandwich for lunch? And they're beginning to make some of their own decisions till eventually they are a responsible adult. Missions ministry needs to do the same thing. We don't go out to be the one in control forever and ever. Amen. We are training up them to do the work of the ministry, leaving it in their hands, and we move on to the next place. But we don't leave too soon. Somebody says, well, this is, this is just a lot to know about missions. I don't know how many books or seminary classes I can take. I'm just going to be like Jesus. I just want to do what Jesus did. Now, all of that's been the introduction. Let's consider our message today. Would you be like Jesus? Turn with me if you have your Bibles. If not, you can just listen to me read Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to look at just a few verses here, verses 23 to 25. If you would seek to imitate our model and our example, let's look to see in the life of Jesus what he did. So many people, perhaps some of you still wear the little WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? And those are good, good bracelets. Those are, that's a good uh, mindset to keep before you all the time in big decisions that you make. 
But rather than sit around and speculate and wonder what Jesus would do, he's given us his word. And all we have to do is turn to it and see what he did do. And then we can seek to imitate our model, our example. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus was going about, the Bible says, imperfect. He was going about teaching. This was not a one and done mission trip that he went out and did that and said, OK, I've done my mission thing. This was his life. This described who he was. He was going about. He was teaching he was explaining, that is, what the things that he was proclaiming. He was preaching. We have the didache and the kerygma in there. We have the teaching aspect of the life of, of Jesus, the, the explaining in the preaching and the teaching, constantly giving out doctrine, which say, some people say leaves them cold. But Jesus did that always. In fact, Mark 10, verse 1, and it, the Bible says, and as was his custom he began to teach them. Jesus was always teaching. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what your skill is. It could be that you drill wells. It could be that you are a medical doctor. It could be that you're a nurse. It could be that you are a preacher. When you go to the field, you need to invest that into other people because we never know how long we're going to be there. And if the Lord takes us out tomorrow... We need to know that the work that we've done is not going to cave in. Our work should not be the center pole of a circus tent so that when we leave and we take our center pole with us, the work caves in. We should be the scaffolding around the building that we are helping the nationals build. And when we leave, we take our scaffolding, but the building continues to operate. Jesus was teaching. He was preaching. What was he preaching? The Bible says the gospel of the good news. The gospel of the good news of the kingdom, I, I am constantly amazed what people answer when I ask, what is the gospel? As I go around the world, I hear some really interesting answers to that uh, question. And I don't want to ask for a show of hands here. I just want to remind us quickly. The gospel is simply that God is perfectly holy and we are perfectly not. And because we are not holy, we cannot go into his presence in this life or in the one to come. Any one sin would keep us from going in his presence because holy means moral perfection and separation from everything that does not have moral perfection. But Jesus came and he died on the cross, not just to pay for our sins, but to give us in exchange his perfect righteousness, that righteousness which is necessary to go into God's presence. You don't just need the absence of sin. You need the presence of righteousness. 
Pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. All of these commands mean we don't need to get up to the level of zero. We need someone to pay for our sins, yes, but we need perfect righteousness. And even though all that is true... Another part of the gospel is that you must repent of your sins and be born again. It's not automatic. People aren't born saved. We are born in need of salvation. We must hear the gospel message, repent and believe. Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom. And the part that I really want to kind of concentrate on, given the crowd that we have here today, is that he was healing. Jesus went about healing. He healed the diseases. He healed the pains of their symptoms. He was doing the kind of ministry that many of you are focused upon, the ministry he has given you to take around the world and all the work that you do and perhaps work that you don't even know about yet. But the, the question comes up in missions classes and in books that you might read, books that, that um, have come out even just in recent years, basically asking us, what is it that we are to do? What is the mission of the church? And perhaps you've heard this argument, maybe in your own church or in classes or in among your mission friends. Should we go and preach the gospel or should we minister to those who are hurting ministry to the least of these? Which is it that we should do? Yes, is the answer. We should preach the gospel and we should minister to those who are hurting and do ministry to the least of these. Because why? Because our model gave us that example. He told us that that is what? We are to do his entire ministry was involved with both preaching and meeting the needs of people who are hurting and Christian missions today needs to be involved with that. But I want to emphasize a full healing. I I want to emphasize that we should not dedicate ourselves just to one or the other, that genuine New Testament Christian ministry should seek to do both. Have you ever noticed that they brought the worst cases to Jesus? They they brought those hopeless, incurable situations to him. Healing ministry, medical ministry, is a powerful ministry. It has been throughout missions history. In fact, what we have seen throughout missions history is that in cases where it doesn't matter what the hierarchy is, you can have a mission president, you can have a number of preachers and teachers, you can have all kinds of different roles in your mission and have one person there who's a medical missionary. And in the eyes of the nationals, that person's that person becomes the one who's in charge. That becomes the one that has the greatest respect. Remember, Satan understood this when he was when he was trying to get permission to attack Job. And he did it first and took everything away from Job. And he still did not curse God. And Satan said, yeah, but touch him, strike him with something and he will curse you to your face. Because Satan understood that when a person loses their health, when a person is in that much need and are so desperate, they become open. They begin to listen. And they began to look outside themselves for help. Which diseases did Jesus heal? All of them. They brought all the diseases they could find, the worst cases to him, mental, physical, emotional. He healed them. 
without any kind of delay, without any kind of expensive prescriptions or any kind of painful treatment, he healed them. Jesus was always interested in those needs of people, the physical needs. And it's interesting, when you study his life, Jesus was always busy, but he was never in a hurry. That stands out to me because, you know, when Jairus, who's panicking because his 12-year-old daughter is dying, and by now she may be dead already, he didn't know it was that desperate, he goes to Jesus, will you come? And Jesus says, sure, I'll come. And he's going, and as Jesus is going, all these people are crowding around and thronging, as the word the Bible uses, thronging against Jesus. And all of a sudden, the woman with the 12-year issue of blood slips up through the crowd and she touches the hem of his garment and is instantly healed. And Jesus said, oh, who touched me? And Peter said, you're kidding, right? Who didn't touch you? Everybody's touching you here. He said, no, somebody touched me. Healing has gone out from me. She knew as soon as she touched the hem of his garment, she was perfectly healed. And he knew as soon as she touched the hem of his garment. She was perfectly healed. But, you know, that particular medical affliction, physical affliction, made her unclean. She was cut off from society. Everybody saw her virtually a leper for having a disease that made her unclean. Luke tells us that she had spent all that she had on doctors and no one could heal her. She was hopeless. She was cut off. Jesus knew she was healed. She knew she was healed. But Jesus wanted everybody to know she was healed. He wanted to restore her to fellowship with her people. No longer unclean and no longer cut off. And he gave her full healing. That is not just physical. But there was social, mental, emotional, and most of all, spiritual healing that took place. And only then did he turn his attention to going with Jairus to raise his daughter who had by then died. Always busy, never in too much of a hurry to minister to those who are hurting. And not just casually, but a complete healing. Someone said, speaking of the ministry of Jesus, that Syria heard once again. Just as they had back in the days of Elijah, when Naaman, the general, came down to be healed of leprosy, Syria heard once again that there was a God in Israel who could heal from leprosy. And they were coming. They were coming from hundreds of miles around to receive this ministry. Now, some of you, some of us, we have been in these medical clinics overseas where there are hard-hearted sin-soaked pagans, and they are just there to get what they can get. And they are unruly, and they are rude, and they are not appreciative, and they're certainly not listening to any gospel presentation. And you just say, you know what, let's, let's just do the clinic and get out of here. This, this, let's just get back to the hotel. And we just want to do what we came to do, that which we can physically check off and go away. I would submit to you that that is just as wrong, in in view of the ministry of Jesus, that would be just as wrong as me going into a place where people are dying of starvation and I've got a truck filled with food, and all I do is preach a John 3.16 sermon and get back in my truck and drive away. You, You would say, well, how in the world could you do that? How could you leave those people without food when you have it to give? 
And I would say the same to someone who comes and conducts a medical clinic without sharing the gospel that they desperately need to hear. For those of you in medical ministry, wouldn't it be great if this world were, were a world where no one ever got sick, nobody ever suffered, and nobody ever died? And we work yourselves right out of a job. And we'll find something else for you to do. But wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be great? You wouldn't have to ever... You wouldn't ever have to take care of anyone. No one would suffer in that way. The Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield, speaking of this power of Jesus and the healing ministry that he had, he, he talked about how even a, a handkerchief taken from that Jesus had touched could heal entire regions. And he makes the statement that all of Palestine was cured and freed of any disease for a period of three years. And as I read that, I thought, well... We don't exactly know that's true. I mean, there could have been some people that were sick that didn't get to where Jesus was or whatever. And the Bible doesn't technically say that. But I don't want you to get bogged down on that because that's not my point. I want to just take that as an illustration and set it out there. What if he had? What if Jesus and these kinds of healing ministries that he did, what if he had actually healed every single person in the entire country? They still got sick again, didn't they? And they died. And everyone will. Unfortunately, the people in this room and all of the medical personnel in this world will never eradicate this world of disease or suffering. People need to be healed. They need to be ministered to. They need to receive your ministry when they are hurting but they need a full healing. This body will wear out. It will die. And it is appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for everyone who believes. In it is the salvation of God. In Romans 10, verse 13 Paul said that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we like that. That'll preach, Paul. But Paul began to ask some unfortunate questions. Unfortunate because they make us a little uncomfortable. He said, but wait a minute. How can they call on someone they've not believed in? And how can they believe in somebody they've never heard of? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Every one of us has received the Great Commission. It was Jesus' last command. It should be our first priority to take the gospel message to the world. There's not enough people in this room to do that. Now, Jesus turned the world upside down with 11 men. And so you say there's a lot more than 11 here. We could make a much greater impact than we're making, I would submit to you. But there's not enough for us to do it. But we're not supposed to. Because the Bible gives us a discipleship principle that we are to apply. William Carey, father of modern missions, when he first arrived in India, he looked around and saw all the Indians. And he said, if India will ever be one for Christ, the Indians will have to do it. And one of the primary parts of his ministry, the very beginning aspects, was training nationals in a thoroughgoing education so that they could do the work that the Lord gave to them. Jesus came near to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And I am with you to the very end of the age. Paul told Timothy, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We've got to train the people, whether it's through your medical ministry or whether it is through drilling wells or whether it is providing food or whether it is purifying water or whether it is rescuing people from flesh trafficking or whether it is preaching the gospel or whether it is teaching pastors, whatever it is, you've got to train people to continue that ministry behind you. We must teach them as we've been taught. But we must also minister to them physically. A hungry stomach has no ears. A person drowning in the middle of the Ohio River is not terribly concerned about his 401k. He is concerned about survival. And these people who are hurting, what they know more than anything else is that they are hurting. And when they see in you the ability to be relieved of that suffering, we need to bring to them that which we are able to do. Physical ministry allows them to see in us loving kindness. And the loving kindness that God has for them is demonstrated through our ministry. Our prayer is that they will be drawn to him through our actions. And as they're drawn to him, they, were, they will enter into a right relationship with him through Christ, who gave us the model to do that kind of ministry. Remember that Jesus healed everyone who came to him then. And he can still do that today. I don't have that ability where, according to my desire and sovereign wishes, I can heal whoever I want to. Jesus can. The Lord can heal anyone. But he has chosen to use means. And you are those means. He could save everybody right now. He could make John 3.16 appear on every cloud. Every time somebody opens up their laptop, John 3.16 appears on the screen. He could do that. But he has chosen to use means. He's given us these commands to minister in the ways that he has equipped us to do. What is the mission of the church? What is the mission that Jesus had? Quickly, he gave us the great commandments, didn't he? The greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on these two. Martin Luther said, if that's the greatest commandment, I guess to not do that must be the greatest sin. And he said, I've never loved God that much for five minutes in my life. What would it look like for you to love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus also said another thing about the law and the prophets hanging on one thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. So you see in that the commandment to minister to others on God's behalf. That's the greatest commandments. But the great commandments need to be accompanied by a great compassion. Remember when the people, the crowd was coming out to Jesus in Mark 6, 34, it, the Bible says Jesus lifted his eyes and saw the crowd coming out to them and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. But we have the Great Commission that I've just mentioned to go 
make disciples, baptize, and to teach. And no matter what else you do, well, no matter what else you do in ministry, whatever you, what else you do in missions, the gospel has got to be tied to it or it's just good to do. We don't want to go around and just make a bunch of healthy lost people. And you might say, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. Neither was the guy in John 9 who had been blind. And when they began to grill him, he said, look, all I know is that I was blind and now I can see. And you can tell what Jesus has done in your life. And that will be a powerful testimony to those who need to hear. The imperative verb in the Great Commission is not go. The imperative verb is make disciples. And what is discipleship? Somebody said that discipleship is simply growing into the person that you would be if Jesus were you. Who would Jesus be if he lived your life and had your name? Or think of it this way. If Jesus comes back tomorrow, if he's going to come back to the world tomorrow, but he's not going to tell the world. He's just going to come back and live his life through you. What would he have to change to be him? Change it. This is what this is what we call repentance. It's not just for pagans. It's for us, too. And if we see there's an aspect of our life, we've been feeding the flesh or going our way. And we've not done and become the things that would be pleasing to him. We can change it. My prayer is that no one leaves here today the same way you came in. That there would be some something about this conference, something about one of the exhibits that you went to, one of the missionaries you talked to, somebody you had coffee with, or this message right now that's gotten you thinking, what needs to change about my life? Ministry to both the physical and the spiritual needs to be combined. And that can be overwhelming. In fact, it's impossible. You just cannot do it. But he will do it through us. Why? Because he said, and I am with you to the end of the age. Not I will be. He didn't promise that he will be with us. He said, I am with you. He's here right now. There are more than two or three gathering in his name. If we got really, really quiet, we might hear the sound of sandal footsteps walking around among us. He is here. He knows your heart. He knows what he's made you to be and do. He knows how he has been stirring and calling you. He knows your role. What he would have you to be and do. Of all the groups that I speak to around the world, this group, this demographic, the people gathered for this kind of conference know more than anybody else that I talk to that life is short. Night is coming when no man can work, but we are just here for a little while. Don't waste your life on you. It's not yours. You are bought with a price. And the one who bought you, who gave his life for yours, said, go and make disciples of all the nations and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You belong to another. And the one to whom we belong has said... How are they to believe in somebody they've not heard of? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can they preach unless they are sent? In other words, everybody here is to be involved in the international missions enterprise. Every single person. 
No exception. If you're a believer, you are to be involved in international missions. Now, I'm not one of those guys that twist people's arms and make you go to the mission field. I have to go with you and keep twisting your arm to keep you there. And depending on where you go, I may not want to do that. But the, the truth is, as I was writing a few years ago, this book called The Missionary Call, researching a lot of different missionary heroes and what theology and biblical study says about missions and what a missionary call is, trying to help people to understand it came to my realization that really resonated with my theology is that if God has called you to be a housewife in Louisville, Kentucky, you cannot glorify him more by being martyred in Somalia. The highest and best use of your life is to do what God has called you to do in the place where he has called you to do it. In fact, that's a quote that Moody publishers pulled out and stuck on the back cover of the book because they wanted that to be emphasized. I'm not trying to say God's only pleased with you if you go to the mission field. No. But if he hasn't called you to go, I can tell you with absolute certainty he has called you to send. There is no other option. You are a goer or you are a sender or you are in sin. Spurgeon is one of my heroes. I have his little portrait in my study at work. He was a pastor in England in the 1800s. He said this. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak. Your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. He said, recollect that if you he said you either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. What did he mean by that? You have to sell the farm and go to the other side of the world. No, he didn't do that. So what did he mean? Somebody has said he probably had a definition of missionary, like a missionary is anyone who cannot get used to the sound of pagan footsteps on their way to a Christless eternity. Truth is, before we go to sleep tonight, 50,000 more people from unreached people groups will have gone into a Christless eternity. And that's going to happen again tomorrow. And it's going to happen again the next day. Because after 2,000 years with the Great Commission, a third of the planet still has not heard the gospel. What if 2,000 years ago, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you guys have had this horrible disease and the whole world's going to die of it. It is a terrible way to go. But in this warehouse back here, there's medicine and there's enough medicine for everybody in the world. And here's the key to the warehouse. Now, take it all over the world and give everybody the medicine. Now, I've healed you. Don't worry about it. You're not going to die of this, but you've got to get this medicine to everybody else. Imagine. And after 2,000 years... Two billion people have not even heard that there is a medicine for this terrible disease. And it's not just a disease that lasts for this life. It is a Christless eternity. World without end. Some are goers. Some are senders. But everyone has a role to play. There are at least three things those two deals have in common Neither is possible without the other, right? Neither is more biblical than the other. Neither is more important than the other. If all of us were senders and nobody would go, we would be pointless. And if all of us were going, there'd be no one to send us. Remember the church at Syrian Antioch after Stephen had stoned? Everybody scattered and they, scattered and they gathered back together in Syrian Antioch. 
and the Holy Spirit came down and these guys were committed to the Lord. That was the place where they were first called Christians. And it was like a nickname and it wasn't very respectful. It meant they were acting like little Christ's Christian. But the name stuck because it fit. They were acting like Jesus. They were sharing the gospel with people that weren't like them. And they were genuinely growing. Barnabas goes in and gets Paul, brings him back to, to teach there with them. And the Holy Spirit came down and said to the church, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them to do. The rest of you are slackers. No, he didn't say that. They have to go, but you have to send them. And remember, they came back and gave their mission report. That's the church today. I don't know your role. I don't know if you're supposed to go. But if you're not going, you should send as if souls depended upon it. I was just in a country uh, this past year where it is illegal to propagate the gospel, to change from being your old religion to being a Christian. And the punishment could be death. Let's say that it's the law right here. And even to spend your money and to believe that people must come to Christ, must hear the gospel and must come to Christ is necessary for salvation. And it's against the law to even believe that. Have you ever seen one of these detective shows where they can take your checkbook or your credit card statement and they can recreate your life, tell you how many children you have, how often you take them to the doctor, where you take them, how many pets you have, where you go on vacation, how many cars you have, all those kinds of things they can tell you. They can recreate your life from your financial statements. Let's say that the prosecutors here can do that. You're on trial for believing people need to hear the gospel and be saved to go to heaven when they die. Would we find enough evidence to convict you of that? If we're looking in your financial statements or looking even in your calendar, would we find a priority for Jesus' last command? Making disciples of those who desperately need to hear. Night is coming. And God is calling. The question you have to answer is when he calls... How will you respond? Jonah chose poorly. Ask him when you get home. It didn't work out well for him. God said, go that way. And he went that way as fast as he could go. God is calling. You can say no. And you can say, Lord. But you cannot say no, Lord. The moment you do, he's not. You are. People need to hear the gospel. People are hurting. And God has equipped us with the gospel and skills and resources to minister to them in their time of need. And he's calling. And I know, because I've done this for a while, someone will say, Brother, I haven't heard anything. I don't hear him calling. I don't hear him saying anything. Many of you probably know Manhattan. Manhattan is crazy. They speak seven, uh, 800 languages a day in Manhattan. It's one of my favorite places. It's like Pentecost in reverse. Everywhere you go, there's a different language going on. And I love languages, so it's really fun. But it's just pandemonium all the time. Sirens and buses and cor- uh, horns honking and people screaming, running across the street. It's just, especially lunchtime, it's just craziness. And this guy writes in his book that he's walking down the street, down the sidewalk in Manhattan with a friend of his. His friend happened to be an American Indian, Native American guy. And 
he says to his Native American friend says to him, he says, I hear a cricket. He said, you do not hear a cricket. He said, no, I do. I hear a cricket. He said, how could you hear a cricket? All this noise going on. And he says, I just do. And he saw outside of a hotel, these two big bush tree kind of things growing. And he went over to one of the planters and he reached under there and he said, see, he said, how did you do that? And he's like, it was a witch or something. He said, no, he said, how did you do that? He said, what do you mean? I heard a cricket. He said, but how did you hear it? Ah, so he reached in his pocket. Now, with all these horns and sirens and buses and subway going under the street and people running around screaming at each other and everything else, he reached in his pocket and he got a handful of change and he dropped it on the sidewalk. And he said when it hit, every head within 30 feet turned to hear where the money came from. And he looked at his friend and he says, it just depends on what you're listening for. You cannot tell me. That with so many lost people in this world, so many hurting people in this world, so many resources right here in this room. I started to say in the United States, in this room, that God is not calling people to respond. Lord, I will go. You lead, I will go. You know I've got responsibilities here. You know I've got difficulties here. The Lord, if you open the door, I will go. The Lord does not care about your ability as much as he cares about your availability. The Lord, I made terrible grades in high school Spanish. The Lord knows that. And he will give you the language ability that you need. You should have seen my report card all through high school, elementary, everything. My report card said all the way. It was terrible. (laughs) And yet when the Lord saved me, he opened the doors for all kinds of other things to happen. He can do that with every one here. We could all of us pile up all the problems that we could imagine. And we could even bring problems from other family members. And we could make a big pile up here. And none of us, all together, none of us, could imagine a problem that would even cast a shadow on the soles of his sandals. God is bigger than the universe. And he has these people in his heart. And he wants to have you in his hand, doing his will for your life in the places where he'll send you. He wants people surrendered to walk in complete obedience. Saying, all I want, Lord, is all you want. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The world will say this is crazy. As they said to C.T. Studd, trained for medicine, silver spoon in his mouth when he was born, famous cricketer in England, had the world at his beck and call, and people said, Studs, do not go off to missions. God doesn't expect so much. Look at what you would be giving up. And he said, if Jesus is God and he died for me, no sacrifice I could make would be too great. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to have a time for you to respond. And you got cards Response cards in a packet, 
of information. There are others up here on the stairs. If you didn't get one, all I'm asking you to do is write a note on that card to yourself and address it to yourself of what God is saying to you right now. Unless I am providentially hindered, I will follow God to the mission field wherever he sends me. I will send others to the mission field as if souls depended on it. I am responding as God is leading me right now. And then they're going to sing. And as we sing, you come. You come to this map. There's a big world map where I'm standing. And you place your card on the part of the world map that resonates in your heart right now. To the Muslim world. To the Americas. To East Asia. To Eastern Europe. Wherever God has laid on your heart. And if you don't know where. If you have no idea where. Come and place it on the map. The Lord knows where. He is here among us. He knows your heart. And he is calling people right this minute. Let's listen and obey. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here. And we thank you for speaking to us this morning. Lord, as we look into the life of Jesus, we realize none of us are equal to the task of seeking to be like him. Lord, you've called us to be faithful to your call. Help us to hear it with hearts that say, all I want is all you want. Move through us. Use us. Not only right now, but for the rest of our days. When we step into your presence to look around and realize there are people around us that we led to the Lord. There, there are people there because of ministries that we help support. Have your way among us, Lord. Make us obedient children for your sake and for the advance of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.